This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The board that oversees the Technology Modernization Fund has three new members. National Archives and Records Administration Deputy CIO Sheena Burrell, CISA Trusted Internet Connection Program Manager Sean Connolly, and Small Business Administration Chief Technology Officer Sanjay Gupta will join the board as alternate members. They'll vote on projects if regular members aren't available to vote. Defense Department components would pay a budget penalty if they can't pass a full independent audit by the end of fiscal 2022, according to a bipartisan bill in the Senate. The bill from Democrats Bernie Sanders and Ron Wyden and Republicans Chuck Grassley and Mike Lee would make components give back 1% of their budgets if they don't pass an audit next year. GovExec reports the department's failed its first three full audits. October 1st will be day one for the Army to transfer assets to the Space Force. Lieutenant General Dan Karbler says moving from his service to the Space Force won't change capabilities of the units. FedScoop reports one of the first units to move will be the Army Satellite Operations Brigade. Healthcare premiums could be going up for some federal employees. The Senate's new postal reform bill would change the mix of the federal employee health benefits plan and might leave people out of it. Jessica Clement is staff vice president of policy and programs for the National Active and Retired Federal Employee Association. Uh, Jesse, welcome. It's good to see you. Here's how I read this. It sounds like some uh, healthy employees might be moved out of the FEHBP into a special plan might leave older and sicker people in the FEHBP. That, of course, would drive up rates. Am I reading this right? Yes, you took an exceptionally complicated policy issue and managed to drill it down into 10 seconds. So well done there, Francis. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so what this bill does and its House counterpart, they're identical bills, would separate the FEHBP risk pool into postal and federal. So right now we have about 8 million individuals in FEHB this bill would pull out all the postals and postal employees and retirees would have their own plan except for a few postal retirees who would stay in FEHB. There are people that are in some of the postal programs in the FEHBP, the NALC one and others that aren't postal employees. Would that provision go away? Would those employees, uh, those federal employees that use postal service plans and don't work for the postal service have to go into other plans? Would they be forbidden from using those plans moving forward? Or do we not know yet, Jesse? They would be forbidden from going into postal plans, but theoretically, and there is a lot of analysis that still needs to be done on this bill by the part of the Office of Personnel Management, and that's what we're asking for. Do not take any further action on this bill until we have an analysis from OPM on how this would affect both classes of people. So in theory, Francis, you look at those postal plans, NALC, APWU, the rurals, they would have both a postal plan and an FEHB plan. So people, so federal employees and retirees could stay in the NALC federal employee plan, theoretically. What do we know about the provisions of this bill, the reasons other than federal employee health insurance that the Congress is potentially looking at making these changes? 
So the thing that concerns us the most, um, NARF as an organization that represents all federal employees, postal employees, retirees, is the provision that allows postal retirees without Medicare to stay in FEHB. So the Postal Service wants its own risk pool. And the reason it does is because under this legislation, postal retirees would have to enroll in Medicare. So if you're a postal employee right now, when you turn 65, you will have to enroll in Medicare. When you have Medicare and other insurance, Medicare pays first. America is a first dollar payer. That brings rates down in the federal plan and this new postal plan for everyone. It makes it it makes this group cheaper to insure. But under this legislation, if you are a current postal retiree who does not take Medicare when it is offered to you, there's a special enrollment period that waives late enrollment penalties. We're very pleased with these provisions. But if you don't take it, if you're like, no, I'm a postal retiree, I'm, I'm happy with my health insurance coverage, I made the right decision at 65, I don't need Medicare, you stay in the federal pool. And it's those group of people, retirees without Medicare, who are the most expensive to insure. And that is why, based on analysis from a 2012 bill that did something very similar, we think FEHB costs will rise for that segment of the population. So I understand then the benefit to the Postal Service. The benefit to the Postal Service is that their risk pool goes down in price to insure because these folks, as I mentioned at the beginning, that are older and sicker aren't in the pool anymore. That, that's exactly. the benefit to the Postal Service, right? That is the benefit to the Postal Service, and that is why the Postal Service is asking for this to bring down its health care costs um, with this Medicare integration. What we don't know is of the tens of thousands of postal retirees currently without Medicare, how many of them will take advantage of this um, special enrollment period with the waiving of the late enrollment penalties and take Medicare? My anecdotal evidence says probably a good number of them. We hear from NARF members all the time who made a decision at 65 when they were healthy not to take Medicare that does not suit them anymore later in life. And they say to us, I really wish I would have taken Medicare. So I think a good number of people will take advantage of this option. We don't know how many, and we don't know the effect those who don't will have on FEHB. We can venture a guess based on analysis from a 2012 bill that's very similar. But what we're doing is encouraging Congress, both House and Senate, not to move with this bill any further until we have that analysis. There's a letter from your president, Ken Thomas, that we'll link to at govmatters.tv slash resources that explains all of these positions. What you, you taught, you said there's lots of don't knows and you're asking for basically a pause, it sounds like, Jesse. Mm -hmm. What do you want to happen specifically? You've talked, you've kind of touched around the edges of what you want to happen um, more broadly, but what do you want to happen specifically in this analysis? What's a good result in your view, whether Congress works this, uh, moves this bill forward or not? So what, what we're asking OPM to do is hopefully they're checking in with their carriers, right? Let's just use Blue Cross Blue Shield as an example because they are the largest carrier in the FEHB program. Blue Cross Blue Shield hopefully can say to OPM, we have this many postal retirees. There are this many who don't currently have Medicare. We can reasonably assume X percentage will, will take Medicare if offered to them. What we need to know is how many of those most expensive to insure, the retiree, postal retirees without Medicare, would stay in FEHB. And when they do, OPM should be able to tell us, okay, we have a smaller risk pool now. We have 6 million people instead of eight because there's 2 million in the postal pool. And if this many people now with a smaller risk pool are costly to, 
more costly to insure because they didn't take Medicare, that's going to have effect on premiums for everyone, probably going to go up. We need OPM to tell us if that if that is in fact true, what their analysis shows the effect on the entire FEHB population. Jessica Clement, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back. Thanks, Francis. You can read NARF's letter about the postal reform bill at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, the Pentagon may be thinking about war with China and Russia all wrong. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the four top changes coming to warfare. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Joint Chiefs of Staff is putting the finishing touches on a new joint warfighting concept. The data and information that will drive that concept will mean a dramatically different way of warfighting than the services prepare for today. Chris Doherty, senior fellow in the defense program at the Center for a New American Security. He's writing about next-gen warfare under the title More Than Half the Battle. Chris, welcome back. It's good to see you again. Why did you call this work that? More than half of what battle do you mean, Chris? Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me, Francis. Um, you know, the, the first part of it, it's a little bit of a, a sly reference to the old G.I. Joe uh, public service announcements used to come on after the cartoon, which was, you know, they say now you know, and knowing is half the battle. So I, I kind of was, a, it's a sly reference to that, um, that some folks have, have cued in on. Um, but more than that, it really is um, central to how we will fight China and Russia, uh, or central at least to how they think about fighting us, is to attack the way that we manage information, the way we execute command. And, you know, if you, if you come to one of our war games, you'd see this every single time. The way the war starts is with China or Russia making concerted attacks against our command, control, communications, computers, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance networks, otherwise known in Pentagonese as C4ISR. Um, and those attacks are so predictable that you can essentially script them out. And what happens is that they leave the U.S. commanders um, without proper situational awareness, without an ability to build a targeting picture, without an ability to share their information around the, the, the combat environment, and with about, without an ability to make effective decisions. And what that means is that China and Russia, until the United States can reconstitute that capability, um, they have a, a huge window of opportunity in which they can seize their objectives. There are four lines of effort that you write about in this work. One is forcing China and Russia into dilemmas about expanding or escalating a conflict. How would we go about doing that, Chris? I think we go about doing that by how we posture our forces and how we operate. And we force them to make decisions between allowing us to keep our systems operational, to not attack our systems, or to reach into third party countries or into places and spaces that they don't want to attack. For example, the US homeland. So in one of our uh, war games, um, the blue team took the combined air operations center from which is usually located in Ramstein Air Base in Germany and relocated it to Shaw Air Force Base in North Carolina, um, which is a lot like what um, CENTCOM did recently when they relocated the Combined Air Operations Center, KAOC, that's usually at Al Udaid in Qatar and relocated to Pope Air Force Base. And this, so this is something we can do. And it presents them with, with this dilemma of, I know I want to attack the Combined Air Operations Center because that's the nerve center that controls all US air operations in this theater. And I know that I need to shut that down. But at the same time, I'm not quite willing to go and reach into the homeland and conduct kinetic strikes in the US homeland in a fight over Eastern Latvia. And so I think if we can pose them with those dilemmas of these difficult choices 
I think we can improve our deterrence posture and improve our ability to respond to their sort of subconventional behavior as well. The second line of effort that you write about is leveling the playing field in the peacetime information environment. Using the word leveling implies to me that you think it's not level now and that maybe we're behind. Am I reading that right? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, I would say we're very far behind um, in large part because we just haven't been focusing on it for you know 20 or 30 years. And I think also in part because it's not part of DOD's traditional core competency. Um, information operations is something that DOD does, um, but sort of holds at arm's length. Um, and there are a variety of reasons for that, both cultural and also legal inside the United States, some of the restrictions on what we can and can't do. Um, and that's why I think one of the first things we have to do is sort out the authorities for doing these sorts of activities, um, particularly in third party countries that are either allies or partners, um, because you know we don't want to erode our trust with them by going in and conducting you know, info ops in their territory, but at the same time, we know that we have to do these sorts of things because the Russians and Chinese are pushing quite hard in the information environment. In the third one, I, I had to get my dictionary out and it still didn't help. The third one is achieving degradation dominance in the techno-cognitive confrontation. <laughs> what does techno-cognitive even mean, Chris? So from my perspective, um, imagine for a moment that you're going to research something and imagine doing it without Google. Um, or imagine you're going to go shopping for something, but you were going to do it with Amazon. Um, I think at some point, certain parts of the technological space and the information technology we become accustomed to using is so fused with our way of thinking that they're impossible to extricate from one another. And I think the same thing goes in DOD. Um, I think about things like land navigation. At some point, we have lost our ability to do land navigation or, or navigation, um, whether I, I, I'm an army guy, so I think about land navigation, but I'm sure um, you know my Navy brothers would say, yeah, you know that applies at sea as well. Uh, but my point being that we've lost our ability to do these things without GPS. Like we rely on that technology to, to execute the cognitive function of navigation. And I think the every place that you can see that is an avenue for China and Russia to use those technologies as an entry point into our cognitive processes and disrupt our ability to do the things that we have to do as a joint force. And so I think you have to think about that that confrontation as a constant thing that's going on all the time, every day, 24 seven, 365, and it will only ramp up in intensity during a crisis or during a conflict. All right, the fourth one is organizing and training for degraded and disrupted multi-domain operations. Are we not doing that now? That doesn't sound like a good thing if we're not. I would argue that we do it, but in very limited ways, um, and we don't do it to nearly the, the degree or intensity that we need to as a joint force. And I think the training area might be a little bit further ahead of the organizational area. Um, I think you know we're increasingly incorporating things like information operations, um, like electronic warfare and cyber operations into large training exercises like you know Red Flag, for example, for the Air Force. Um, but I don't think we've actually gone to the degree of organizational reform and change that we need to in order to operate in the sort of more, what the Chinese would call the informationized warfare. Um, and I think what we've seen is that we've made some organizational changes over the last 20 years particularly in places like special operations in order to respond to um, you know, the, the kinds of wars we've been fighting, these irregular wars and counterterrorism conflicts. Um, but I think there is a whole nother level of, of integration at the joint level and of pushing critical capabilities down to lower echelons of command that'll be necessary in order to operate degraded. Because if we posit that forces operating forward inside you know, the first island chain, inside you know, the Philippines, Japan, in a crisis or conflict with China, they won't have that constant high bandwidth reach back to either the Joint Task Force Commander in Japan or to the combatant commander in, in uh, of US Indo-PACOM in Hawaii 
Chris Doherty, it's a fascinating work. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you so much. You can read Chris's report at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, a $200 million grant list from the Labor Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Washington solutions to a 50-state problem. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Labor Department will award up to $200 million to states and territories to fix their unemployment insurance systems. A lot of those systems suffer from the same legacy technology problems federal systems do. Stephen Wandner is senior fellow at the National Academy of Social Insurance. He's former senior economist for the Employment and Training Administration at the Department of Labor. Steve, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is the Labor Department's role in overseeing the state unemployment systems and interacting with them? Well, the unemployment insurance system is a federal state program, which means that the states actually run the programs. They have their own state uh, unemployment insurance laws and they operate the program day to day. Uh, the U.S. Department of Labor uh, provides leadership, oversight, and guidance uh, to the program, uh, or at least they're, they're supposed to, and they would do a lot better job if they had adequate staff and resources. How much can in influence can the Department of Labor have above and beyond the money if each of the states has the responsibility to run its own program? Can the Labor Department, um, for example, uh, mandate any kind of uh, data standards or anything like that to uh, improve the communications flow from the federal government to the states? Generally, uh, the Department of Labor can't mandate uh, a great deal, but it can provide guidance, it can develop model systems. Uh, there's a lot that it could do uh, if it had uh, adequate personnel and adequate resources. But with less than 50 people in the Office of Unemployment Insurance, uh, giving that guidance and leadership is quite difficult. Uh, for example, uh, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, the Department of Labor developed model state laws, and to some extent, the states did uh, follow uh, that direction. But since the 19, early 1970s, uh, there's been this steady decline uh, in staff and resources. In the early 1970s, the, the Department of Labor had about 300 people who were uh, who were working on unemployment insurance, and the numbers have declined steadily, and the resources they have have declined steadily. What would the people, if if we move back up to 300, what would those people do that's not getting done now? The there would be a, a wide variety of things that. Uh, the department would do. I mean, some of them deal with program operations, helping on with benefits, state benefits. There are a number of federal benefit programs. There uh, are folks that deal with tax, but there are very few of them now. Uh, 
and there are specialized functions that could be improved. I mean, we've seen uh, delays in, uh, in getting benefits out. Part of that is because of specialized areas like uh, adjudication and the appeals process uh, where the department has provided training in the past. They're, the department also uh, supports actuarial estimates uh, that they can help the states. They do the federal uh, uh, actuarial estimates. They do budget. They can help the states with state legislation and they work with the Congress on uh, federal legislation. All of those processes now have at most a handful of people uh, working on them. There are some activities where one person is doing, working on two different programs. Uh, that, that doesn't work. Steve, we have about 30 seconds left. What would you watch moving forward? What, what, what are the next action steps that would help this situation? Well, there are two kinds of activities. One is to provide the states and uh, the Department of Labor with more money to administer the program, uh, develop model computer systems and the like. The other is what Senators Bennett and uh, Wyden are proposing, which is a wide variety of uh, federal uh, law changes that would greatly improve the program and improve its funding. Steve, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Appreciate the insight. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And to get a preview of every show, when you sign up for our daily program guide, you just text GOVMATTERS to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. In tonight's event spotlight, the ACT-IAC Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference focuses on the innovations and emerging technologies that are on the forefront of change in federal IT. Day two of the event is virtual. It's tomorrow from 8 in the morning to 1.30 in the afternoon. You can read more about the event and how to register at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award 
on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.